Turn with me to Exodus chapter 13. We're going to look at chapter 13, 14, and 15. And as you do uh, go there, just uh, you might not know that, but know this, but the first song we sang, actually, Ben wrote it. Yeah. And uh, not only that, but uh, Ben's from Philadelphia, and I have a Philadelphia story. So he just left, which is probably good, because Philadelphia doesn't come out looking good in this story. Uh, so, so a couple years ago, I went to a pastor's conference in Philadelphia. And uh, right when I got off the plane and outside of... Uh, of the airport, I realized I will never come back to Philadelphia. Um, I went there in August, and the humidity nearly killed me, all right? I was just sweating, right? My sweat was sweating. Just think about that. But, but that aside, uh, it was two days, and there was about 100 pastors, and it was wonderful, and it was encouraging. But after the two days, I just wanted to go home. Do you, you guys know that, that feeling? You've ever been to those conferences, right? You're, you're there all day. You're in these sessions. Then you're in breakout sessions. Then you have lunch. You're meeting people. And, and I kind of, I'm a sort of an extrovert, but even an extrovert, their inner introvert's like, I'm done, right? There's a particular tiredness that comes in conferences. And so after two days, I get back to the airport, and I just want to go home. I love that word. Isn't that one of the great words? Home. Well, I get on the airplane, and I sit down, and even before we sort of taxi out, I fall asleep. I'm dead tired. But rudely, the pilot interrupts my sleep, and so I wake up, I look out the window, and I realize we're still on the ground. We, we haven't left at all. We've been there for like 30 minutes. And then the pilot tells us that there's a lightning storm, and all the planes are grounded. It's like 8 p.m. at this point. All right, just don't look at my trip advisor review of Philadelphia, okay? So we get off the airplane. If you've ever had this happen to you, it's like a riot. It's like, you know, Darwinian. It's like survival of the fittest. Everyone's running to the counter trying to rebook, trying to get home as fast as they can on the quickest flight home. And so there I was, right? I canceled this. I, I got on another airline. It was costly, but I just wanted to get home. And the soonest I could get home was 6 a.m. the next morning. And so at that moment, it dawns on me after I booked everything and got it all taken care of. Like, I'm sleeping in the terminal tonight. I called my wife, and I'm thinking, I could spend $100 on a hotel, right? Or maybe, maybe better put, I, I should spend $100 on a hotel. But then I decide, nah, I'll save the money, and I'll just sleep on the floor before my flight the next morning. Anyone ever done this? Anyone slept on the floor of an airport, right? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's weird because not only are you trying to sleep, but you're also trying to protect your stuff simultaneously. <laughs> I just wanted to go home, right? Over and over and over again. Even as I'm trying to sleep, I'm dreaming of, thinking about, meditating on home. Getting home can be complicated, can't it? It can be hard to get home. It can be even costly to get home sometimes. But really, the Christian story is all about getting home when you think about it. The Christian story is all about 
I keep going in and out, don't I? Is there something wrong with my mic? All right. Uh, the, the Christian story is really all about how to get home. If you think about it, the, the story starts with Adam and Eve at home, in this beautiful home that God has built for Adam and Eve called Eden. They are at home. They are at peace. They are at rest. They are walking with God, but not for long. You get to Genesis 3, and because of sin, Adam and Eve are evicted from home, and there's no moratorium on that eviction, is there? They're evicted. And so from Genesis 3 on, there's this question on God's people. There's this question for all of humanity, which is, how do you get home? I think regardless of where you're at, if you're religious or you're not religious, all of us deep down want to go home. We have that, 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 that just angst in our souls. We might not even have language for it, but we just want to go home. And we'll do about anything in order to accomplish it. Well, this morning's text is all about that very theme, about how to get home and the purpose of getting home and how God brings about his people and how they get home. This text, it's a big text. We're not going to read all of it, but we'll read some of it. These three chapters are broken down into three sections, and we'll kind of go through it in that way. The big idea should be behind me, and it's this. God consecrates, we'll talk about what that means. That's a $10 word. I'll try to chunk it down into a dollar word. But God consecrates, and he frees his people in order to bring them home. So go with me to Exodus chapter 13. We're going to read the first 16 verses. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be eaten with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory." You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statue as its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first opens the womb. All the firstborns of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of the donkeys you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons shall, you shall redeem. And when it is time to come, your sons shall ask, What does this mean? 
you shall say to them, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborns in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of the man and the firstborn of the animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that firstborn open, open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. We'll stop there. So let's just kind of orient ourselves back into this story. Chapter 12 ended with the Passover, right? And God's people are marching out in divisions from Egypt, and they're in the wilderness. And God accomplished this at the cost of blood, if you remember. Israel's marching out because of the blood of the lamb that they sacrificed and then put on their doors. God passed over them. God did not pass over the house of Egypt, though. But, but in light of that, Pharaoh now lets God's people go, and they're marching out into the promised land, or towards the promised land. And then, chapter 13 starts with telling Moses this whole idea of consecration. That, that, that they are, if you look, verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Now, verses 1 to 16 are weird because verse 1 introduces, and verse 2, this whole idea of consecrating. And then you get to verse 3, and it's back to talking about bread, unleavened bread. And then back in verse 11, it gets back to consecration. So what's sort of going on here? Well, I'm going to sort of break it down. It's odd, but what the author is doing, he's linking two celebrations. The celebration of setting aside firstborns and the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's linking them theologically together as important feasts in order that both of them remind them of what God did in Egypt. So in verse 3 through 10, God gives instructions that Israel was to annually celebrate this feast. We, we talked about it last week, right? They, they were going to have a, a week-long feast, which then culminate in the Passover, And all of it was to point back to and remind them. It was a a celebration, a memorial of what God had done, right? God's power and might and the wonders that he performed in Egypt in order to bring God's people out from Egypt towards the promised land. And then in verse 11 through 16, we have this whole idea of God saying, okay, I want you to set aside firstborn, both of humans and animals, I want you to set them aside. That's the language of being consecrated. Set them aside. But, but this wouldn't happen once a year. I mean, this would happen sporadically, right? As sporadic as a child is born, right? Winter, spring, summer, fall. Firstborns are born all times of the year. So every, every season, they would be celebrating what God has done for them. And the point, the sort of theological point of doing this, we see actually all throughout verses 11 through 16, but, but you see it particularly in verse 12. The, the point, theologically, the, the, the significance is that this celebration of, uh, of setting aside the firstborn, the significance is that that's the Lord's. 
the Lord rules. So, so to consecrate means to set apart. And so every firstborn animal and child would, when they were born, be set aside. There would be a ritual, a celebration setting them aside, which would then theologically point to and remind them of how God set his people aside in the Exodus and redeemed them at the cost of blood. So really what's going on here in verses 3 through 10 and then 11 through 16 is that the author is linking these two celebrations together and saying both of them, both of them point to a similar reality. I mean, did you, did you notice when I read it how similar the language is? I mean, in both celebrations, it says, you know, sons are going to come to you and ask, what, well, what is the meaning of this? And almost the answer is the exact same. The, the point is that blood was shed in order for God's people to be set apart. And then blood was necessary for them to be saved, delivered, freed. After all, in in chapter 4, God himself says, Israel, you're my firstborn. And so I've set you aside as my firstborn. That is who you are. That is your identity. You are my firstborn set aside. I have ownership rights over you. Therefore, all throughout the year, there's going to be a celebration reminding you of that truth. So so in many ways, what, what, what Moses is telling us, the author is that once a year and then all throughout the year, God's people need reminders of who they are, that their identity as the set-apart people of God, right? That those that have been redeemed at the cost of blood, and they need reminders yearly and also sporadically throughout the year. They would forget who they are. They, they would forget who God was without these sort of celebrations, Well, God's people from the Exodus now, God knows us far better than we know ourselves. And so by way of application, what what this is meaning is that though we don't celebrate Passover in this traditional sense, or, or we don't, in one sense, consecrate, set aside the firstborn, what this is telling us by way of application is that we, too, need reminders of who we are and who God is. We need constant reminders, yearly reminders, and sporadic reminders. And we have that, don't we? We, we, we have that. We, we celebrate baptism. Baptism is that outward sign of God's inward transformation. We celebrate communion, which is also a reminder of how we together as a community have, have come together and that God has set us apart as a church at the cost of Christ's own blood. But, but I also want to just point out, because we talked about communion last week, is that one way we come together and remember who we are as a people, what, what our identity is, and how we come together and remember who God is, is but what we're doing right now as we gather every single week. Uh, in the first century, uh, when the New Testament was written, evidently some Christians thought that they didn't need to gather. In the book of Hebrews, we read that in some sense that, 
Well, God's people, they didn't gather all the time. Now, I get it in one sense. I get that it's often and sometimes hard to come and gather as a church. I think COVID has just kind of increased that reality, hasn't it? I mean, I've seen as my wife has tried to get to to church with multiple kids and it's like she's on a pirate ship and there's mutiny on her hands, right? I get that it's often hard to get to church. I get that it's more convenient to stay home. I get that there are many reasons why it's hard to gather as a church. And I think in this last two years, we've been reminded of the reality that sometimes it's just easier to stay home. I, 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 I get it. I get that it's more convenient. And yet there is a reality at play here. And the reality is we need reminders of who we are, of our identity, of what God has done in our life in order to redeem us at the cost of God's own son's life. We need reminders of what it looks like to follow God, to encourage each other as we follow God. Having Jesus actually isn't sufficient to have a thriving relationship with Jesus. Now that might sound almost heretical, but Jesus is sufficient for salvation, but he's not sufficient alone because he's given us people. He, He knows that we actually need people in our lives in order to help us to have a thriving relationship with Jesus. And that's what the church is. That the church, as we gather every Sunday, it's a signpost, it's a, it's a reminder, it's a celebration of who we are. We are set apart. We are the set apart people of God, set apart by Christ's own blood. We come together to think about who God is. We don't come to be entertained. We don't come as consumers. We come to do business with God and to remember who we are. Because as we learn in the Exodus story and we learn all throughout the Bible, all of us, we have spiritual dementia. And so there there are lots of metaphors for the church, but, but one metaphor for what we do when we gather as a church is that we are a, we, we're a memory loss community. And so we come to remind ourselves of the old story as we follow Jesus in the present, awaiting his promises and all of his promises to be fulfilled. So that's the first idea. God's people, even here, God says, I need, we're going we're gonna to have lots of celebrations. We're going to have lots of festivals. We're going to have lots of rituals. And all of them are going to point to some theological significances because you're all going to forget who you are and what I've done for you. So I'm going to put them all throughout the year. The same is true for us. Everything we do as a church, as we gather in small groups and Bible studies and gather on a Sunday, they're meant to remind us who we are and what God has done for us to free us. Well, that's the first. God first sets us apart, but now second. Let's, let, let's look at how God frees us. Look at verse 17 of chapter 13. Chapter 13. 
you know this story. I'm not going to read chapter 14, but you know the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. I'll retell it and paraphrase it as we go. But starting in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, let the people change their mind, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So chapter 13 and then at the the end of chapter 13 and then the beginning and all of chapter 14 It's a story of God's people crossing the Red Sea into the wilderness. And you guys know this story. You've seen the movie. But it's interesting that there's actually a narrative twist. I mean, if you read this and then the uh, the chapter 15, which is the, the sort of poem that gives theological significance to this historic story, there's like divine sarcasm and humor all over the place, Okay. So here's me saying that there's sarcasm in the Bible, so there's probably a place for sarcasm in our lives, okay? There's a twist. And one of the twists is that the most direct route is not God's route. We learned that there's this interesting play because you would think that God's people, after being delivered, they're going to go straight to the promised land, right? To Palestine. God makes it really clear that actually, no, there's, there's not... The direct route is not the route that they're going to take. They're going to kind of meander through. God's got lessons to teach them. God's got some things for them to accomplish before they arrive in the promised land. But right there at the end of chapter 13, we learn that God's going to lead them, right? I mean, God is so committed to leading them that he's even going to lead them uh, by night, right? There's a cloud by day, so they know exactly which direction to go. And then at night, there's this fire. I mean, they know night and day where they are to go. And so God literally is the map. And so God leads them not straight towards the promised land. He he leads them actually into a trap. He leads them to have their backs to a sea, right? And you could just imagine, right? Just imagine for a moment that Israel is camping at the sea and where are, they, where, where are they supposed to go, right? I mean, they are literally geographically blocked in. God has sort of put them in a place that is very, very vulnerable. They're in a precarious situation. And it's at that time that now Pharaoh kind of enters the story, right? Pharaoh is livid, right? He wants blood. All throughout the, the plague narratives, Pharaoh's heart is hardening, and now it's like granite. And he gets his best warriors, his best chariots, and he's coming for blood. He's coming for vengeance. And so he charges, right? He, he, he goes out to meet Israel, and Israel is literally a sitting duck, trapped by the sea. And they begin to panic. 
chapter 14, verse 11, they panic. Just put yourself in Israel's shoes for a moment. And so as they see off in the horizon, you know, the Egyptians coming for them, they turn to Moses, and this is what they say. They said to Moses, is it because there was no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Just leave us alone that we can serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Do you see, do you see what they're saying? They're saying, it was bad in Egypt, but come on, Moses, you led us all this way here just to die. You, you can sense their pain, can't you? Their, their, their anxieties, their panic, their deepest nightmares they think are about to come true. I mean, just put yourself in Israel's shoes. They had their plan. They had the plan, right? We are going to be delivered. We did everything right. We, we, we crossed our T's, dotted our I's. We did everything that God wants us to do. And now we're going to die in the wilderness. They had their plans. And so they turn to Moses and blame Moses. We have our plans too, don't we? Where we have the script that we think our lives are going to go. Uh, on my worst days, as I'm reflecting on the past two years, I, th- I sometimes think, okay, God, you could have brought COVID-19 five years ago so that Ron Sanchez could have dealt with this. <laughs> like, you are the sovereign Lord. Why me? Okay? We, we have our plans. I, I did not plan this. But we have all other plans too, Right? We have plans as it relates to um, our jobs. You know, we think, I'm going to work for a particular company, and I'm going to retire at that particular company. That's the plan. That's the script. And then, because of Christian conscience, some, maybe even in our church, might lose their jobs. That's not the plan. It wasn't in the script. It wasn't the way things were supposed to be. I, I, I have a good friend who struggles with depression, and sometimes it takes everything just to get out of bed. And I know his wife. She, she's also a friend, and I know this. It wasn't the plan. That wasn't the plan, to, to walk with him in this. I mean, we could just lay out thing after thing. It wasn't the plan to be single in my 20s or 30s or 40s or what. So often we look at our lives, we look at how they have rolled out, and we think, this was not the plan. This was not the script that I had for my life. And so we can, in a real sense, relate to Israel who turns to the closest thing to them, the person and reason in one sense why they're there, and they snap at him. Our plans don't often go the way we script them. That's the reality of Israel. But look at Moses' response in verse 13. Moses said to the people, 
Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Now that you have only to be silent, that's a Hebrew. It's very, actually very curt. So to use a slightly bad word in my family, basically to summarize Moses's pep talk, it's not much of a pep talk, but here's the pep talk. He says, Israel, don't fear. God's going to fight for you. And you only have one duty and it's to shut your mouth, right? That's basically what Moses says. You're here. God's going to fight for you. He's always fought for you. He's going to fight for you. He's going to show up. All you have to do is quiet your mouth. Well, after Moses speaks, God speaks to Moses. And sort of before Moses is told what the plan is and how this amazing thing is going to happen, notice in verse 15 that God rebukes Moses, which is interesting because you're like, no, Moses is the good guy, right? Like, why is God rebuking Moses? Moses has done everything. He's led everything, right? Every single thing that God has told Moses to do, Moses and Aaron, well, Moses has done. So why in the world is God rebuking Moses? Well, the simple answer is that, and we we learned this early on, but Moses stands as the representative for all of Israel. So So in Israel's sin, in their lack of faith, Moses stands for the people. He is their representative head. And so God interacts with Moses as if Moses is standing for all of Israel. And in many ways, this is this sort of, by way of contrast, what's going on here. It is a prefiguring of Christ himself. This is the gospel, right? Christ is our representative. Moses, in this sense, didn't sin, but God is treating him as if he is part of. And Jesus Christ, he never sinned. And yet he was judged for our sins. He stands in our place as our substitute. That's the gospel message. It's the gospel message you're going to hear every Sunday. That we are sinners and we deserve death. And yet, what do we get instead? Well, if we put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ as the substitute, we get life. We get redemption. We get a salvation far better than we see here in the book of Exodus. We get a salvation from our sin, from death, from the judgment and penalty caused by our own sin. Well, after this rebuke, God rolls out the plan to Moses. Moses is to stretch out his hand and the seas are going to roll back, right? And you see in this language that there's like, there's Genesis 1 uh, language, right? God is like using creation and he's sort of parting like he did when he uh, parted and divided the world, right? When he created in Genesis 1, he's using that same creational power displaying his, he is the creator sovereign God, and he's using that power to divide the water in half such that people are going to, what? They're going to walk on dry ground. So they do that. Moses stretches out his hands that the waters divide. God's people begin to march out in their divisions through, uh, through the Red Sea. And at that point, the Egyptians come and they start going through it. But don't you love it? Don't you, don't you love verse 25? 
the chariots have some engine problems, right? The, the, the chariots blow a, a tire. Isn't that a coincidence, right? You're, it's like a, a wink to us going, ha ha, it's funny. Look, they're, they're traveling and of course they have engine problems. Well, finally, when Israel is in safety, God then tells Moses to reach out his arm again, and the waters now plunge and fall. Judgment finally falls fully on Pharaoh and Egypt. And in many ways, this is Noah language, isn't it, right? Judgment, when we think about it, sometimes judgment, uh, the language is fire, but it's sometimes water, like in the story of Noah. And so in a very Noah-like way, here we have God's judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt coming by way of a flood of water. And that's the way chapter 14 ends. With God's people fearing God and experiencing his great power, in how he freed them and delivered them from Egypt, right? There's literally no going back now. Those dreams of going back are drowned. Now, it's a great story, but one of the wonderful things about how Moses actually puts this is that he then puts chapter 15, which is a poem explaining theologically the significance of that historic uh, story. So, So look at chapter 15. I'm going to read it. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song of the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, uh, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Like the flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy, I, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoils. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew your, with your wind, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic and holy? Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength by to your holy abode. The people have heard. They trembled. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, a place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Verse 19. 
For when the horse, horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry, dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Chapter 15, it's a retelling, as you see, in poetic language of what just took place in chapter 14. And notice that in the, ver- in the first 12 verses, God, it's a, it's a praise psalm, but the, the, the characteristic of God that is praised is that God is a warrior God. Did you, did you notice that, that, that language? Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. There's, there's sort of a cadence going on, a, a drumbeat that the, that the author is laying down, and it's that God is marching to war against his enemy, the Egyptians, and he held nothing back. They, they thought, oh, we're going to get Israel and their God, and God flexes. Actually, in one sense, you know, it's, it's like how easy this was for God. I mean, that's how big and powerful this God is. And then we get this rhetorical question in verse 11, right? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Right? All along this Exodus account, we have um, Israel saying, our gods are really powerful. And now at this final act, we have God finally saying, your gods are nothing. God is majestic and powerful and wonderful. He stretches out his hands. Notice, right, the, the story tells, God says, Moses stretched out, but who, who is declared as the person who actually stretched out his hand? Was it Moses? No, it was God, right? God used Moses' hands. It was his power in the hands of Moses that accomplished this amazing wonder. Right? Moses didn't save God's people. It was God through Moses. But, but why does God do all this? As I was reading and studying, I just thought, okay, so why does God do all this? Why is he, you know, setting God's people aside? Why is he freeing God's people? Why is he delivering God's people? Even here. And here's the wonderful thing. The answer is in verses 13 to the end of, the, the end of what I read. Verse 21. There's a, 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 a grammatical change, a tense change. You know, up until verse 13, they're talking about the past, what God has done in the past. And now in verse 13, it talks about what God's doing now. Look at verse 13. I mean, you should underline this. You should memorize this verse. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Why has God done this? Because it's an act of his love. And then in verses 14, 15, and 16, we have this whole concept of, you know, all these people who are inhabiting the promised land. And so what's going on is, what God is saying through Moses is that, hey, I just delivered you. You're now on safe ground, but I'm bringing you home. 
I'm taking you home. And look at the fear of the people who are living in the promised land right now. They're trembling. They're in dismay. Right? They are melting away. They have terror and dread, verse 16, on them. It's not just that they're marching to the promised land. They're marching home. And the inhabitants should be as fearful as Egypt should have been fearful because God is bringing his people home. That's why he does it. It's not as if God just says, I'm going to free you and just you can go on your merry way. I'm going to free you and you can just do whatever you want to do. No, God sets us apart and God frees us in order to bring us home. But notice how home is described. Verse 13, abode. Verse 17, mountain, your mountain. Sanctuary. These are, this is temple language. And so what he's really saying is, I'm bringing you home, but it's I'm bringing you to Mount Zion. And who resides on Mount Zion? God's going to reside there. You see, when I was in Philadelphia and I was dreaming of home, yes, I was dreaming of my mattress, right? Obviously. But really, I wasn't, you know, dreaming of home because of I have this great house. I wasn't dreaming of home because I love Puyallup more than Philadelphia, although that is for sure true. This is the promised land in contrast. That's not why I was dreaming of home. I was dreaming of home because of who lives in my home. I was dreaming of home because of who resides in my home. I wanted to be home because I wanted to be with my family. I want to be with my wife and I want to be with my kids. That's home. And that's the picture we have here. God sets his people apart and he frees them to bring them home because he's bringing them to himself. That's that temple language. That's what makes home so wonderful. That's what makes heaven so glorious. Not because of the treasures, but because of who is there. God himself. Jesus himself said this in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John. He told his disciples that he's going to prepare a place for them. And he said, I will come back and take you. And it's going to be really great and we're going to do fun stuff. So that you can be with me. That you may also be where I am. Did you see the emphasis of Jesus? I'm going to prepare a place for you so that you can be with me. That's the importance of home. That's why God sets his people apart and why he frees them. Not just so we can get a free ticket to heaven, but such that having the ticket, we can be with God in his presence forever. That's what the story of the crossing of the Red Sea is all about. It's that God sets apart a people. He frees them in order to bring them home to himself. That's our story, isn't it, as well? 
God set us apart. He saves us, sanctifies us, comes into our life. But we don't just go directly to heaven, do we? Right? We don't directly go home. We've got an indirect route. Lots of pit stops, hardships, some suffering. But the point is that we're going home because that's where God is. We are going home to be with him. So until that day, may we gather as a church to remember that truth, that God sets us apart and frees us to bring us home. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you that all of us are pilgrims. And we want to go home. And in many ways, this church is a home. It's a foretaste of the ultimate home. You reign in your people through your church. And so we get a foretaste of home even here, Lord. So I pray, Lord, I pray that we would meet you in a profound way. Be in your presence and worship you as the Lord who fights for us, setting us apart and freeing us. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.